0: Good afternoon. It's really nice to see you all. I'm just finding my place here. Um, Today, if you didn't know, you probably do. It's Palm Sunday. Um, Traditionally, this is the day um, that uh, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey to a tremendous reception. Uh, Joan read to us from John chapter 12. Um, this particular Sunday has become known as Palm Sunday simply because people were waving palm branches that they either robbed off trees or found lying about the side of the road. They were throwing their coats in the air, putting them in the road for Jesus to walk on, waving palm branches. If, if we were American, we would say everyone was hooping and hollering. You know, that, that that's the kind of image that you get when you read the Gospels. The crowds, quite literally, went wild on Palm Sunday. Um, but by the following Friday, they were demanding his crucifixion. And he was dead. Uh, they say, don't they, that a week is a long time in politics. I, I think a week it was a long time at the end of Jesus' life. Um, this, this ridiculously true in Jesus' case celebrated by thousands as a coming king and a week later crucified alone like a common criminal even his very closest friends ran away last week we began our little series um, which we've entitled The King Who Died we began uh, with a little substrat line or whatever you call it the king who died can be trusted we were suggesting that the fact that Jesus died for others is a very compelling reason for us to trust him um, he is as we saw last week we were in John chapter 10 he is the great good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep He is the kind of leader or king who has the best interests of those who follow him at heart. And he's demonstrated that by laying down his life for people. He actually cares about the needs of others and isn't just, as we might say, uh, feathering his own nest. Uh, The fact that Jesus died means that he can be trusted. Today I want to move on a little and think about this uh, statement. The king who died can be treasured. Um, wow, technology it works. The king who died can be treasured. It might seem an odd way to use that, but I, I like the fact that it kind of goes with trusted because I like alliteration because it helps me to remember things. I hope it helps you remember things. He can be trusted He can also be treasured. What I want to convey today is something about the supreme desirability of Jesus. He is not just trustworthy. He is also supremely admirable. The fact that this king died makes him precious. It makes him worthy, supremely worthy of our attention and of our devotion. Now, I think that this seems like a valid distinction to make. I nearly put another slide on there. Trustworthiness and um, desirability are, are, are two things. It's good for us to just uh, make a distinction. It is possible that someone could be trustworthy and very, very boring. That, that is possible. It is possible for you to be Trustworthy, efficient, but just boring. Um, everything works. There's there's no there's nothing that's kind of unreliable. But somehow it is just very dry, and uninspiring. I I, I don't want to like um, single anyone out here, um, but this can be an issue in marriages and. I, it can work both ways as well, but we'll do it this way. The wife wants to know, does my husband love me? And maybe she asks him one day, oh darling, do you love me? And the husband says, what are you talking about? <laughs> I go to work, I do all the DIY. I don't know why I'm doing this in a northern accent. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm all the grass. <laughs> what more do you want? Of course I love you. Is it not obvious? <laughs> why is that a northern thing? I've no idea. All of those things that the husband says are a demonstration of love, in a way, and faithfulness, but they're all expressed in terms of function. I'm a solid, dependable, and reliable man. What more do you want? (laughs) Do you love me? Of course I love you. But there's more to life, isn't there, than just doing things or fixing things. What about the way that you do those things? What about character, and maybe the work is why I, I appreciate the jobs you do, I really do but in, at, at the end of it all oh, I could hire a robot to do all of those things what I really want is you not the jobs that you do, I want you that, it can work the other way I don't know whether it would be southern that I've no idea um, it, it can work the other way too so I'm not just thinking oh, that the wrong way around This is also true in the stuff that we fill our homes with, uh, as well. William Morris was a famous artist in the 1800s. Some of you have heard of him. Uh, Maybe you'll even know where I'm going with this. He gave a very famous lecture in Birmingham in 1880 that has gone down in folklore amongst interior designers. Because, and this is what he said in his lecture: "If you want a golden rule that will fit everybody, this is it." Are you ready? Have nothing in your houses that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. That was his question. Look at all the stuff you've got in your house and ask the question, is it useful or is it beautiful? Things for him either had to have a function or they needed to be nice to look at. If it's, uh, and for William Morris and th- this is in the 1800s before we had loads of like cheap tat. Uh, th- th- this is in the 1800s he's saying if it's not useful and it's not beautiful it's clutter get rid of it so you'll know now what you're doing over the Easter holidays this is your time to spring clean is it useful or is it beautiful Morris made another interesting point that is less well known than that one in the same lecture actually and uh, uh, I'm, I'm just missing out. He, he was a bit using a lot of words when just a few would have done. but So I've cut some words out here. But he says, Beauty is no mere accident to human life, which people can take or leave as they choose. But it is a positive necessity of life. What Morris is saying is that we are wired as human beings... To appreciate beauty, life is not just about function being efficient. Life is about beauty to be admired as well. If something is useful and beautiful, then that's a great uh, thing. So the the reason we've kind of the, the reason I'm saying all that, I, I hope this kind of sounds. Right, coming out of my mouth as it did in my head is the king who died can be trusted. That is a functional category. Today, I want to move on and say that it is equally true that the king who died can be treasured. That is a kind of aesthetic category. He is precious. He is, in a way, beautiful. He is not boring or predictable. The king who died can be trusted and he can also be treasured. I suppose my question last week for all of you and to my own heart as well was, do you trust Jesus? That, that's a question about confidence, isn't it? This afternoon I want to ask a different question. Does Jesus move you? Is he precious to you? And that is much more about love, isn't it, than just confidence. Do you see something in Jesus that stirs your heart, that captures your imagination, that even takes your breath away? We're in the realms here of desire and enjoyment. I think our modern culture understands this more than most things. We're thinking here about what we love the most. That, maybe that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. What, what really stirs my heart? What makes me feel inside something of wonder and amazement? What do I consider to be truly valuable and precious? I think Palm Sunday is very, very relevant to this question because of the dramatic nature that the, of the way the crowds respond to Jesus. At first, they seemed to treasure him. And then it seems like they wanted to spit on his grave. They celebrated him, and a week later, they were crucifying him. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record this incident in some detail. So I think that's a clue that it is quite important to them and, and to us. We're going to stick with John, partly because we looked at John chapter 10 and chapter 9 and chapter 8 last week. And uh, so I asked John to read the account here in John chapter 12. As we'll see, some of the other Gospels add some more details and we'll try and build up a picture. So our main idea today is the king who died... Our our kind of sub-strap line is that he can be treasured. I want to say four things. The first two are observations about Jesus, and the last two are observations about people. So hopefully we can take some applications away. So here's here's the first thing about Jesus. You can't predict him. Let's, um, Let's try and build up this scene just by the way this is one of the reasons that I I personally find the gospel so compelling if you were trying to make it up you wouldn't write it like this because it's completely unpredictable I want to suggest to you that Palm Sunday is all about expectations and um, there are a number of different groups in this story groups of people that all converge on Jerusalem on this particular weekend, and it's no accident. So I want to highlight three. There might be others, but here's three. And we'll try and get a sense of what their expectation was, and hopefully, well, I hope the story will come alive to you. Um, So i prepared a little map. Um, um, Here's the Dead Sea, the River Jordan. Jerusalem is where all the action takes place. There's a little village called Bethany that's two miles from Jerusalem, Jericho, you might have heard of. And we'll come back to the little village of Ephraim up in the north, behind the Judean hills a bit later. <coughs> the first group that come to Jerusalem on this weekend, I've called these guys Passover pilgrims. Um, this time of year was the beginning of the Jewish Passover feast. If, you, if you're familiar with um, Judaism at all. Every year, Jews still do this. They Jews celebrate the Passover. <coughs> this goes back to the time of Moses and the Exodus coming out of Egypt. There was a big film over Christmas, Exodus: Gods and Kings. I never actually got to go and see it, and it's not come out on DVD yet, so I, I can't tell you whether it's any good or not. But it looked it looked uh, amazing. Um, the last plague, there were ten plagues and the last plague was that the firstborn in every family the angel of death passed over the land and in every family the firstborn would die I, I, I've got one younger brother so that would have been me and Moses said to his wives, I want you to paint on the doorpost. I want you to kill a lamb take the blood take a a branch of hyssop and paint the blood on the doorpost and when the angel of death passes over the land the blood will be the mark and your firstborn shall not die blood is shed it's put on the doorpost and the firstborn safe. I would have been nagging my dad to death stop messing about dad get the blood on the doorpost because I'm going to cop for it. And the angel of death came over. There was great, great trauma in Egypt. And the Pharaoh said, you can all go. I've had enough. I don't want to fight with this God anymore. He's had nine goals already. That was the final score. Even then he chased them. So the Passover is the Jewish celebration of how God liberated them from slavery in Egypt. Every year, for thousands of years, it's been celebrated. So all these pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem. Um, Writers um, try to estimate from various contemporary sources how many people would have been in Jerusalem. Maybe a couple of million people. and Jerusalem is not a massive city lots of windy streets so there there, there are thronging crowds here Um, Jesus went to um, Passover at the start of his ministry we think he didn't go to the second one but then this one he obviously does appear we'll talk about that in a minute but many pilgrims would come from all over um, the place all over Israel even from northern Africa Um, What's significant about these Passover pilgrims is that many of them will have travelled north from Galilee, where Jesus grew up. Most of Jesus' public ministry was done up in the north, not in Jerusalem. And there will have been people coming down from the north who over the last two or three years have seen many of the things that Jesus has done. Maybe they were there on the hillside as Jesus gives the great Sermon on the Mount And these people come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus hasn't been in Galilee for a while. But as soon as they hear that Jesus is coming, there's a kind of whisper goes around the crowd. I remember him. I remember Jesus. Is he here? These Passover pilgrims, very significant group. Secondly, there's another group. And I've called these guys the Amazed Friends I'm sorry, it don't begin with that. Um, the Amazed Amigos would be good, wouldn't it? The, then it would be goodness. okay. Second, th- this is just after G- Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That's what. That's another reason we read from chapter twelve. We read from chapter ten last week. In chapter eleven, one of Jesus's friends falls ill. And dies. his family Lazarus lived in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus comes, Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus goes to the tomb and shouts into the tomb and says, "Lazarus, come out." And Lazarus comes out. The religious leaders in the, at the end of chapter eleven, If you've got your Bible open there on on that page. Amazingly, the religious leaders respond by plotting to kill Jesus. They don't deny what he's done. Some of them were there. But their reaction is, it says in, in chapter 11 and verse 48. If we let him go on like this. If we let him go on like this. He's just raised someone from the dead. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There's a big debate that goes on. So these guys are like, he is too popular. We're going to have to find some way of snuffing him out. But there's a whole group of people here who've seen Jesus raise a man from the dead. So you've got a situation where in Bethany, not two miles from Jerusalem, half the people want to crown him, half the people want to kill him. And it says there in chapter 11, that Jesus, on the back of that, withdraws. Just look at chapter 11, verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. It doesn't say for how long, but when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priest and Pharisee had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. You can feel the tension. Whispers are going round in the crowd. Is he coming? Is he going to come this time? He didn't come last year. He came the year before. Is he coming this time? While the leaders are putting up wanted posters everywhere, Wanted, you know, alive or alive. We, we, we don't want him dead, we want him alive. Bring him in. If you see him, if, you, if anyone, has, here's a whisper that he turns up for the Passover, come and tell the authorities. John later tells us, <coughs> um, John, John read it, um, in verse 17 of chapter 12, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And the the, the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So you can feel the tension. Half the population wanting to see Jesus, the religious leaders wanting to Snuff him out and get rid of him. <coughs> so Jesus is now in Ephraim. Up in the north. It's about 12 miles from Jerusalem. When the times right, And I think there's a point to this for John. Jesus is in control. The authorities want to do things to him. But only when he's ready. The point of the narrative. Is that Jesus is directing things. According to his timescales. And for his reasons, he isn't at the mercy of the state here. I've called the third group. Um, Jesus leaves Ephraim and he comes towards Jericho. And we have to look at the other Gospels here. John highlights the anticipation in Jerusalem, but it's Luke and the other writers who tell us what's happening just before this. (coughs) Jesus emerges There's hillsides here, so Jesus comes the long way around, on the road to Bethany, and back towards Jerusalem. Um, Just go back with me, keep your finger in John, and just go back to Luke chapter 18. Um, And we'll just fill in some of the blanks. so this is on, it's just the previous gospel page 1053 if you've got the same red church bible as me Luke chapter 18 verse 31 Jesus took the twelve aside and told them we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled, he will be turned over to the Gentiles they will mock him, insult him Spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. What are you talking about? He, he, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. Is it a parable? As they approach Jericho, so the red arrow, they come towards Jericho, and there's already a crowd, and there's a man there, I think one of the other, of the other Gospels tells us that his name was Bar Timaeus. Bar means son of, so he didn't even have a name, his name was to be the son of his dad's name. <laughs> it's it's like my my dad's called Alan it's like who who is he uh, son of Alan he hasn't even got a name Bartimaeus begging at the side of the road the crowd are going by and he asks someone what's happening and someone says to him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and this blind man calls out at the top of his voice Jesus son of David have mercy on me the crowd are like, will you shut up for a minute? Just pipe down. There's a lot of important things going on today and they don't involve you, mate. So be quiet and stop causing a fuss. And it says here in the Bible that he shouted over louder. They tried to rebuke him in time to be quiet. The more they tried to quieten him, the more he turned the volume up. Someone give me a megaphone. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped verse 40, and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What a great question that is. What do you want me to do for you? He he hasn't got a list. He, He said, Lord, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. It is an amazing thing for a blind man to be shown out, son of David. David was the greatest of the Old Testament kings. And there were prophecies about David that a future son of David would sit on the throne and reclaim the throne and bring peace to all nations this blind man sees more than the crowds who've got their eyes open He he hears the name Jesus and he thinks he's the man this is the one who was promised the future son of this is the Messiah if anyone can give me my eyes back this man can son of David come over here have mercy on me and Jesus heals him. So, I've, I've called this group the happy groupies. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean when I say that. Here's a blind man. He's virtually skipping down the road, isn't he? They get into Jericho and there's so many crowds. What happens? You, some of you all know the story. There's a tax collector, a robbing, thieving tax collector. They're still about today. Oh, I shouldn't say that. But there's a robbing, thieving tax collector called Zacchaeus. He's been extorting money for the Romans from his fellow Jews. Everybody hates him. He's a little guy. He wants to see what's going on. So he runs down the road. He climbs a tree to see what all the fuss is about. Jesus and the crowds walk through Jericho... They get to the tree. Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea today, mate. The whole crowd are like, What is he on about? Does he know who Zacchaeus is? It said, uh, Just look with me, chapter, eight, chapter 19. Verse 7 All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. Here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. This man, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. That would have been an offensive thing to say. A son of Abraham, the robbing crook. How can he call himself a son of Abraham? for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost here's a man who was made a mess and jesus comes to his house his life is turned upside down and the shock reverberates through the crowd Jesus, in the next section, goes on to tell a story. Verse 11. And we won't talk about the story, but I just want you to notice what Luke says. Chapter 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. We haven't got time to talk about the story. But what Luke says is very interesting. Jesus told this story because of the expectation of the crowd. Jesus just hailed a blind man. He's turned the life of a robbing, thieving tax collector upside down. Every Tom, Dick and Harry in the crowd is thinking, this is it. This, the Messiah has come. So you've got three different groups here. P- Passover pilgrims, You've got a group of amazed friends who've just seen their mate raised from the dead and now coming down the road well it's actually up the road it's 3,000 feet lower than Jericho Jerusalem, Jericho so they're coming up the hill to Bethany, colliding with this group and they're eventually going to collide with this group they're all converging on Jerusalem in the same weekend. The point is there's expectation here this is the promised king. The kingdom of God is about to be born. Let's get back to John chapter 12. When Jesus arrives in Bethany, it's Saturday night and they throw a party for him. John chapter 12 and verse 1, they had a dinner in his honour and Lazarus is among those reclining at the table with him but the word spreads quickly and by the next day verse 12 is where John began to read to us the next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting Hosanna Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic statement from Psalm 118. Blessed is the King of Israel. This is a volatile political environment. The crowds are saying, Blessed be the King of Israel. There's wanted posters up on the walls for him. If you see him, let us know. The whole crowd, palm branches, coats in the air, hopping and hollering, blessed is the king of Israel. And the tallest man in town is Jesus. What does he do? Is he swept along on a tide of public adulation? This is precisely the point at which he departs from the script. What does Jesus do? Verse 14 is one of the most understated verses in the whole Bible. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. The reason we spent time looking at all that is because I want you to get the shock, the sheer and utter shock of that verse, all of this hopping and hollering. And what does Jesus do? He finds a baby donkey. The other Gospels tell us more details on how he found the donkey. Jesus comes riding over the hill and up towards Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a steed that is only fit for a child or a hobbit. Here is Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who's just healed the son of Timaeus, riding into the city of Jerusalem on a baby ass. Even his own disciples are stunned. This, oh man, I need very focus. Verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him. And that they had done these things to him. The coolest man in town is Jesus. You can't predict him. We've still got three other points to go though. They won't be as long as point number one. My second point. You can't classify him. John And Matthew and Mark mention a prophecy at this point that is taken from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. You might see a little footnote there at the bottom of the page. In John's Gospel it says Jesus found a young donkey sat upon it just as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Zechariah wrote his book around 520 BC. We know that because he names one of the Babylonian kings, Darius. So we can be quite specific about when he wrote. He's writing his book as the Israelites are returning from being in exile in Babylon they come back to Judea, to Jerusalem the city's been flattened and the temples in ruins, in many ways they're shattered and fragile and the prophecy of Zechariah is intended to encourage them and Zechariah's words in chapter 9 do not be afraid O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming seated on a baby donkey. Zechariah highlights a number of things. We haven't really got time to, to go into Zechariah. Jesus is a king but not in the way the crowd expected him to be. His coming will be gentle his coming would be the means of bringing peace to the nations Jesus here is very deliberately taking hold of a prophecy from 500 BC and applying it even though no one has a clue what's going on at the time applying it to himself Jesus is saying here I am a king but not in the way you think. He is greater than any of this world's kings, but his kingdom is not expressed in worldly terms of military might or material splendor. He is full of power and authority and yet at the same time gentle and humble. Uh, One of the reasons Palm Sunday is so utterly breathtaking is because it contrasts a blend of attributes in Jesus that are utterly beautiful and unlike anything else you'll find anywhere else. He is not only trustworthy, but he is also to be treasured. Some of you may have heard of a man called Jonathan Edwards. Um, He was a very influential preacher in North America in the late 1700s. A great revival uh, occurred in, in North America. Jonathan Edwards was one of the central figures in that. He preached a sermon in 1738, which you can still read, entitled The Excellency of Christ. And I think it's fair to say that Christ took Jonathan Edwards' breath away. The basis for his sermon was the vision in the book of Revelation of Jesus being described at the same time as the lion and the lamb. You couldn't have two more opposite animals in a way. And the contrast in that vision in Revelation captured Jonathan Edwards' imagination. How can Jesus be both those things at the same time? The lamb is the epitome of meekness and patience and quiet submission. The lion is the animal who boasts strength and power and glory and might. Jonathan Edwards considered that in any other creature, those kind of qualities would be jarring. You can't be both, it's impossible. You you would have to be schizophrenic to be a lamb and a lion. Except Jesus. He combines both of those extremes in himself perfectly. Edwards goes on to highlight other contrasts. Jesus is full of majesty and yet has complete humility. He is perfect in justice and yet boundless in grace. He is absolutely sovereignly in control and yet perfectly submissive to the will of his Father. He owns everything and yet became dependent as a human being. You get the drift. Jonathan Edwards' point in his sermon, The Excellency of Christ, was to stand back and admire the beauty of the Lord Jesus. He is utterly unique. You cannot predict him, and you cannot classify him. Thirdly, um, I want to say this um, there's two things about Jesus here's two things maybe about you and I as we draw to a close you cannot control him the king who died sums up the contrast in a way that I'm trying to make that sentence in a sense shouldn't really be a sentence The king who died the lion and the lamb when we speak of Jesus being a king we're speaking of something ultimate but for this king to die the challenge for the celebrating crowds was that he wasn't the king they expected him to be Why was it that they cheered him so jubilantly into Jerusalem and then abandoned him so mercilessly? I think, to a large degree, the reason is Jesus has come to give us what we want. Hooray! Hooray! They throw their coats up in the air. They wave palm branches. He's come to smash the nasty rock. Hooray! Hooray! Oh, hang on a minute. We didn't expect him to challenge us. Oh, oh that hits. Hang, hang on a minute. This is not what we signed up for. Within a week, they've gone from Jesus is here. Hooray! Three cheers for Jesus, to Oh man, I'm not sure if I like him anymore. Let me read to you a quotation I came across this week. People turn to God notoriously when there is something they want very badly. That's like finally deciding to learn to use a telephone only when you urgently need to call an ambulance. It would have been sensible to find out how to do it earlier when it wasn't so important, but that's how people are. Church attendance goes up in leaps and bounds when a major crisis strikes. A war, an earthquake. Suddenly everyone wants to ask the big, hard questions. Suddenly everyone wants Jesus, in terms of this story, to ride into the city and become the sort of king they want him to be. Give us peace now. Pay my bills and hurry up. Save the life of my sick child please do it right away give me a job by this time tomorrow help 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 give me what I want the problem is that we want Jesus to come to us don't we on our terms to give us what we so desperately need and want we don't treasure him we treasure the things we sense that he can give to us we're more like Gollum than Jesus I have a thought I'd hear a preacher say that my precious we're, we're shrunken selfish caressing the things that are precious to us that actually ultimately enslave us here's the one who can raise the dead give sight to the blind make the paralyzed walk again But the greatest need of all of our hearts is to be changed from loving ourselves to loving him. For that, we need a cross. Another writer says, do we not often have false expectations of what Jesus will do for us? He he will be our errand boy and satisfy our needs help to make our way easy and comfortable be on our side wherever we decide to fight but all of our perverted self-centered hopes are radically altered by this one who comes into town riding on a donkey Jesus is not like a slot machine that you can put like faith coins into and pull the lever and the jackpot comes out He is the king who died. You cannot use him or conquer him or manipulate him or control him. Despite our desire to use him, he actually comes to save us. The sensational, scandalous, inspiring message of the Bible Is that this king came to save the selfish? Like Zacchaeus, you remember him? Let me close with a fourth point. Um, You can't avoid him. Let me explain what I mean. Um, what, What I'd like to do as we close is just take you to one other passage. I'm sorry. To make you jump around so much. Just go with me to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. This is page 1179 in the church Bibles. 1179. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Uh, this week, some of you know, Jane and I were in London and uh, we had our oyster cards for going around on the tube. And uh, a lot of the tube stations have escalators, like this one. Generally, they go down, you know, into the platform. This passage in Philippians chapter 2 is like an escalator passage. Just read with me from verse um, 5. This is Philippians chapter 2 your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross the reason this is an escalator passage is because Jesus starts at the top I wish I could show you a new link he is God but rather than grasp it cling to it rather than jump up and down shouting it's mine it's mine you can't take it off he gives it all away and he chooses to go down the escalator He made himself nothing. He takes the nature of a servant. There's not a hint in him of, did you know who I am? He gives it all away. And he doesn't just go halfway down. He even becomes human. The creator becomes a creature. And even then he's still going, some of those escalators in the underground are really, really long. This is a really, really long one. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The bottom of the escalator for him wasn't a platform, but a cross. Heaven at the top, death at the bottom. Jesus comes all the way down, but that's not the end of the story. I don't want to spoil the end for you if you don't know the end. Come back next Sunday. But the the cross wasn't the end The point is that there's an escalator that goes up as well. What is going on here is that God the Father has placed everything in the hands of the king who died. He has not put history in the hands of a tyrant or a dictator. The one who is in charge is the king who died. And what Paul says here is that every knee will, in the end, bow. Every tongue, in the end, will confess that the king who died is the true king. He was the king before. Now, he's the king who died. And he is the one, whoops, he is the one who will be treasured forever in the book of revelation at the end of the bible the song that reverberates is one of marveling at this very truth worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Who would you give everything to? God has given it all to Jesus because he is the King who died. He can be trusted and he can be treasured the reason you can't avoid him is because this is the trajectory of history from God's perspective the idea is to treasure him now rather than be judged by him then. I have to say to you as I was thinking about this during the week in this world the name of Jesus is not treasured would you agree with that? Everywhere you go, you will hear the name of Jesus used as a kind of swear word. We, we were watching a family movie last night, first time we've all been together for ages, and I couldn't believe the number of times in that film parents saying using the name of Christ as a swear word. He's not treasured, valued, admired, or when he is, it's only as one among many others who can help us along. You can't predict him. You can't classify him. You can't control him. And in the end, you'll never be able to avoid him. Last week, I was asking, do you trust him? This week, I'm asking, do you treasure him? Hello, Jesus.